1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to go back to about verse 17 to get a little context here. First Corinthians eleven seventeen. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now the idea is meeting in church together and hearing a message and singing the songs as Zion and praying together is supposed to make you better. But you can come to a Bible-believing Baptist church and it hurt you worse than it helps you. You say, yeah, churches these days. Well, amen. Churches got their problems. And they can hurt you. No doubt about it. You've been in church very long. You have seen it happen. But a lot of that has to do with how you deal with it. You should know going into any human relationship that they have problems. Everybody's a sinner. If you wanted to not get hurt in marriage, you know what you'd have to do? Just abolish marriage. Because <laughs> every marriage is going to hurt you at times. If you wanted to uh, fix it where uh, a child doesn't embarrass you or a parent doesn't um, hurt your feelings sometimes, you just have to abolish the parent-child relationship <laughs> because that's always going to happen. If you want to find a workplace where you never have any disagreements, you'd have to just do away with workplaces. And same way with church. If you want to find a perfect church, you'd just have to stop having church until we get home to glory where Jesus is our pastor and everything's done perfect. And we all have uh, sinless bodies and sinless nature. That, that'll be a great day. But we ain't there yet. So, yes, the church will hurt you. And you can make it a lot worse by how you treat the Lord and the church and how you react when they have hurt you. But I said all that to say this. You can come together, not for the better, but for the worse, as it says in verse 17. Verse 18 for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. So there's some divisions. And earlier in this book, he talks about how some said, Oh, I'm of Peter, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Paul, and I'm of Christ. Verse 19, For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. Now, I, I believe in the free enterprise system. I believe in capitalism and American freedom and all those things. Wonderful. And one of the things that happens with that is some don't work as hard, and some have some uh, you know, unhappy things happen to them, and they're poor. They can't eat as well. And other people, you know, blessings just seem to come their way and they made some right decisions and some sound investments and they got plenty. And that's the way it happens out in the world. That's not how it should happen at church. At church, we should look after one another. And there's something funny if we're having a meal back there and a couple of rich families all eat well and a couple of poor families uh, barely have anything. Wouldn't that be odd? <laughs> Oh, no, you can't have any of this. You, you all can't earn this. Wouldn't that be strange? <laughs> At a church fellowship? Now, I believe in that out in the world because of some things that people have done to get in the shape that they're in or some things that the Lord has allowed for somebody to get in the shape that they're in. I can't fix everything out in the world. But if we're having a meal here at church, I don't want to see it that way. 
Verse 22, what? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. All right, now in that context of divisions and somebody thinking they're better than somebody else because they have more, he now gives the instructions for the Lord's Supper. Isn't that an interesting context to start telling how to do the Lord's Supper? Verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Obviously, there's no, oh, well, you guys are from a rich family, so you get you know, five pieces of bread and three things of great use, and you over here, well, we'll give you guys a half of each. <laughs> Obviously, there's nothing like that. That's not, that's not what we're doing. Verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. There's the deal. When you're at church, you're supposed to be thinking about the Lord Jesus. And when you're thinking about the Lord Jesus, you're not thinking, well, let's be sure and do this fair. Now, they've worked harder and earned a lot more money, so that that's not what's entering your mind. You're thinking about the Lord Jesus. Verse 26, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That is why the context is important to this. There were people that were eating and drinking the Lord's Supper with thoughts of, we've had the Lord's blessing more than them. Instead of, hey, let me appreciate what God has done for me. That's what you call eating and drinking unworthily. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll meet with us and explain to us and help us to understand the importance of what we do tonight and every quarter throughout the year. Lord, I pray that our minds would be on you and not who is in our clique because we have received blessings of you for one reason or another. I pray, dear Lord, that our minds would be on the sacrifice that you made for us. And what an unspeakable sacrifice it is. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, psychologists tell us that when we feed our little babies, we provide way more to them than just physical nourishment. They learn, I depend on somebody else for my daily bread. My mother is feeding me. My father is feeding me. I look to someone else. As much as I believe in the American system, I understand why most people in world history would not want the freedom that we enjoy here in the United States of America. Now, I know the story, and obviously I've told you many times, we Baptists got tired of being killed and tortured and imprisoned for our faith, and so we wanted freedom where they'd leave us alone and let us go do it without any fear of government reprisal. I totally understand that. But there is something in human psychology 
that is looking to somebody else to feed them. And that is correct. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Isn't that what he told the disciples to pray? Now, it's misplaced if you're looking to a crooked government to do it. But there's something inside of you that knows you're dependent on someone else. And that's something that that little baby is getting when mom and dad are feeding him or her. Uh, the Bible has a number of places where God fed people. Genesis chapter 2, he gives the fruit in the Garden of Eden. In Exodus chapter 16 and a number of other places, he gives the manna in the wilderness in the morning. He gives the quail at evening in the wilderness. In Genesis 14, Melchizedek brings forth bread and wine when Abraham paid tithes to him. And his dad's often pointed out, tithing goes before the law. That's under Melchizedek. Are we under a Melchizedek priesthood, you Bible students? If we are, we're supposed to be tithing. That's what Abraham did to Melchizedek. Genesis 18, Abraham prepares bread and beef and milk and butter for three men, and they eat. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon prepares goat meat and unleavened cakes of flour, both for the angel of the Lord, uh, and broth for the angel of the Lord, and the angel doesn't eat, but consumes it with fire, takes it as a sacrifice unto the Lord. When you give, you're given as a sacrifice unto God. Judges 13, Manoah, Samson's father, offers goat meat with a meat offering, and an angel again doesn't eat it, but consumes it by fire takes it up to the Lord. Judges 15, God makes water come out of the jawbone of an ass. Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, God gives water from a rock. 1 Kings 17, God feeds Elijah bread and flesh morning and evening, brought by ravens. Uh, then Christ is tempted to turn the stones to bread. Well, how would he be tempted if he didn't do stuff like that? God does stuff like that. He feeds his people in the wilderness. He can turn stones into bread. It would have been no temptation if it wasn't something that he did. But the devil was tempting him to do it at a time that he wasn't, wasn't the will of God for him to do it. Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6, all four Gospels tell about the barley loaves and the fishes that fed 5,000 men by Jesus. Matthew 15 and Mark 8, loaves and fishes feed 4,000 by Jesus. Luke 22 and John 13, the Last Supper, bread and wine... And something to be sopped, I assume, some kind of gravy. Um, Luke 24, the resurrected Christ shares broiled fish and honeycomb with the disciples. John 21, Jesus feeds his disciples bread and fish. Mark 14, Jesus says he'll drink grape juice in the kingdom of God. And in Revelation 22, uh, there's 12 manner of fruit on the tree of life. God feeds his people. We used to say in college, when I went to Christian college, where God leads, he feeds. Where God guides, he provides. And it really is true that sometimes when you get in a place and all of a sudden you're in the wilderness, you've probably stepped out of the will of God. I can't promise that all the time because there are times that the Lord will let you go through a lean season because there's a lesson he wants to teach you there. But usually, usually, if you find yourself in a sudden terrible time of leanness, you've probably stepped out of God's will because God tends to provide for the person that he has out there. Who goeth a warfare at his own charges? So this, uh, this Lord's Supper, there's something more going on than us just getting a little bite of bread and a little bit of grape juice. We call it communion. You know, that's one thing that goes on when you have a meal. You know who you eat with? You eat with your friends. 
When's the last time you were in a knockdown, drag out fight with somebody and you said, well, let's sit down and eat? <laughs> That's just not what you normally do. When you share your salt with somebody, as they said in the Old Testament, uh, this is somebody you're in some sort of fellowship with. You've at least made up with them somewhat. Now let's look at four lessons learned from the Lord's Supper. In fact, the Lord's Supper isn't intended for nourishment at all, but for remembrance. All right, the first thing I'll say about the Lord's Supper is it is a Christ-centered event. We are not here uh, doing the Lord's Supper to say, wasn't this a great party we had? We're not here to talk about how we've been able to provide such a great spread. We're here to think about Jesus and what he did for us. We're to remember him. He says, this do in remembrance of me. Hebrews 12, 3 says, But consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye grow weary and faint in your minds. Now once in a while I get weary and get about ready to faint in my mind. I just don't even want to think about stuff anymore. I often make that uh, little talk that I, that I give about wanting to get on the couch and under a blanket. Brother, Brother Kip was kidding me about that this past week. And uh, I just, I just want to make the world go away and just relax my mind. I get tired of thinking all the time. The thing that will cure that is get thinking about the Lord Jesus. Think about all the things he had to think about. He had to dread what he was going to go through taking the judgment of the Father. He had to dread the shame that he was going to go through, not only from humans, but from the devils. I mean, the devils was after him. Think about what he went through that you faint not. You know what? If Jesus could do it, I can do it. I can follow in his footsteps. Remember him. But specifically, remember his death. It says uh, down in this passage, it says, you do show the Lord's death till he come. All right, now what was his death? His death was horrible. His death was where his body was broken. I mean, they ripped his back up till it didn't look like a human. His face was ripped from where they ripped the beard out to you wouldn't have recognized him. His mother would have looked in his face and not known who that was. If she, uh, if she hadn't seen it happen, I don't know if she saw every, I don't know exactly which parts of it she may have saw, seen or not, but he was broken. I mean, it was horrible. Physically. That's not to mention the Stress of having the sins of the world put on him when he was holy and sinless and had never had one sin touch him. And now he turned into sin. The Bible says he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus turned into sin. What in the world? How could this be? He had all that on him. I'll guarantee you, you're going through what Jesus had to go through, you got plenty on your mind. You talk about somebody tired of thinking about it. You talk about somebody would rather lay on the couch, I'm sure, in his flesh at least. My goodness. His body was broken. Broken fellowship with the Father, bearing all our sin. Remember his death. Remember what he did for you. And then whatever you're doing for him, and don't get me wrong, I am not taking away anybody's credit that's serving the Lord. I know it does hurt sometimes. I know you do get tired sometimes. I know you do wish you could have an advocate that could speak up for you sometimes. I understand. But compared to what Jesus went through, it's, it's really nothing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's a good thing to remember that. Remember Him. 
Remember his death. Remember his testament. He said, this cup is the new testament in my blood. What's the testament? Well, that's the last will and testament. That's when somebody dies, the way things are going to be after they leave. You know what he told the disciples? He said, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come. Number one thing is, Jesus went away and the comforter came down. No wonder we sing that song. The comforter has come, the comforter has come. The Holy Ghost from heaven, the Father's promise given. Listen, let that comforter, let the Holy Spirit control your life. Be spirit-filled. Well, the first part of Jesus' New Testament is the comforter. The Holy Spirit comes down. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be heartbroken. You're going to have some things you were counting on. You're going to get tired of some things. You're going to be frustrated with some situations. And it'll sure be a blessing to talk to the Holy Spirit about it. Tell it to Jesus, as we say. Uh, we just had Brother Ron preach our missions conference. What a blessed thing it is to sit down and talk to him about some things sometimes. What a blessed thing it is to talk to my daddy about things sometimes. What a wonderful thing it is to have family members that love you and be able to talk to them about things. Woo, mm -hmm. that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. You know what you're going to want in life? One of these times there's going to be something come up and your family just can't really help you with it. It's not their area of expertise. But you'll never find something like that that the Holy Spirit can't help you with and can't comfort you. Remember his testament. I'll tell you something else, you're adopted in the family. Before the Lord Jesus died on the cross, Gentiles, uh, we were, for lack of a better term, second-class citizens. It was Israel that was the people of God. They were the ones that got all the promises. We could kind of sort of get in as kind of Jewish proselytes, but nothing like we do in the church age. We're adopted right into the family. We get adoption. We get atonement. Our sins are atoned. They're forgiven. They're washed away in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified. That is declared just in the, by the judicial de declaration of God. Can you imagine me, sinner, being declared just by God who is holy? On what basis could he do that? How can he be just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus? Oh, that's why. Because they get Jesus' righteousness put on them, and they get their sins put on Jesus, and he's already paid for them. Oh, that's the New Testament in his blood. When you take the Lord's Supper, be thinking about him. Be thinking about his death. Be thinking about his testament. It's a Christ-centered event. All right, the second thing I'll say about the Lord's Supper, it's an inward commitment. It's an inward commitment. Now, one thing we do when we give the Lord's Supper is we thank Him for some things. We thank Him for what He did. And the Lord Jesus thanked the Lord for the food that was provided. Now, when you thank somebody for something, you know what you're doing? You're acknowledging you owe them a debt. One of those languages, I forget which one it is, has a word for it, something like obligado, something like I'm obligated to you for what you did. Uh, let me tell you, Lord, I'm obligated to you for what you did. You had the Lord Jesus Christ come down and shed his precious blood and wash my sins away and give me eternal life and give me an indwelling spirit. And if I'll just put him in control, I'll be in the center of your will and I'll have your joy and I'll have your peace and I'll go to heaven on that. Uh, obligado. I'm obligated to you. Thank you, Lord. One thing you ought to be doing as we have the Lord's Supper is you ought to be acknowledging your debt to him. Paul said, I am debtor. 
both to the Jews and the Greeks, to the wise and to the unwise, so as much as in me is, I will preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. He said something real close to those words. You know why? Obligado. The Lord had let his sins go when he had been a terrible terrorist, hailing men and women and putting them in prison and holding their clothes while they stoned Stephen to death. And the Lord just forgave all of it and said, you're going to be a servant for me. Furthermore, I'm going to carry you up to the third heaven and you're going to see some things nobody else gets to see and you're not even allowed to tell them about it. You know what Paul said? Obligado. Thank you, Lord. I'm obligated to you. Acknowledge one's own debt. Secondly, on the inward commitment, examine yourself. It says in this text, let a man examine himself. Especially before such a sacred event. I mean, now you should examine yourself anyway. I hope that from time to time you examine yourself and say, wait a minute, I'm bitter at my wife. I'm bitter at my husband. I'm bitter at somebody at church. I'm angry. Lord, what's wrong in my heart? And I don't mean that those people are perfect and they haven't done some things wrong that you should be a little bit aggravated with. But it's one thing to be a little aggravated with something. It's something else to be bitter. Different subject. And when that gets in there, and that root of bitterness gets in there, that's something, wait a minute, Lord, people are aggravating. And the truth is, I'm going to get aggravated with them once in a while. But a root of bitterness? Mm, now I've gone too far. Help me with that. Lord, this sin, it's getting me. I didn't just do it once or twice. It's starting to become a habit. Help me, God. Examine yourself. I hope you're doing that anyway. But especially before a time where we remember the Lord Jesus Christ and we remember how He died for us. We remember His testament and the blessings He's done for us. Especially in a time like that, let's examine ourselves and make sure, hey, wait a minute, I'm treating Him with respect, right? If I don't respect anybody else in the whole universe, let me respect the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody loved me enough to die for me like that. So examine yourself in day-to-day -day life. But especially now, as we get ready to observe the Lord's table. In the Old Testament, it said similarly. It said, consider your ways. You find in yourself as we preach this morning in darkness, and you don't know what to do? Say, wait a minute. Is God the author of confusion? Does the Lord have a will for me, and He's not showing me any of it? And I know we don't know every little detail. And the Lord has His reasons and His wisdom in not showing us every little detail. But we shouldn't be in total darkness. The ones that are in gross darkness are the ones that do what? As we saw this morning. Are not glorifying God. You stay busy working for God and glorifying God. You won't be in gross darkness. You won't know every detail. But you'll have an idea which general direction you're headed. So something's wrong. Examine oneself. Here's another one. Involve oneself. There's a commitment for you to do something. Uh, what we're going to do tonight is observe the Lord's Supper and every one of you that is saved and can say with an honest heart, I'm doing this out of respect to the Lord. I'm eating this worthily. I don't mean that you are worthy. It's an adverb. Adverbs describe an action that we take. They don't describe us. Not one of us could say, I'm worthy of the body and blood of Christ. Of course we're not. But we can make sure that the way in which we take it is done 
worthily. Remember in, the, in school when they told you the L-Y on the end makes it an adverb? <laughs> means it's not describing you, it's describing how you are doing something. So involve yourself. It says, as often as ye eat this bread, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. You're committed to do something here. You take part, and that is a good illustration of you need to take action in this. And I thank God for Victory Baptist Church. There are a lot of you take action in a lot of ways. Try to be a blessing to one another. Try to be a blessing to the pastor. Try to be a blessing to the speakers. Try to be a blessing to the missionaries. Try to be a blessing to the work of God, to the testimony of the church, the building, the grounds, the outreaches, the whatever. I can't think of everything. Thank God you do. Uh, we, have, we have it better than most churches. But be sure that you're committed to actually do something. Because it is easy, and in a lot of places it gets this way, you come in and sit down and let everybody else do something and let them entertain you. You want to call it entertainment. But involve oneself. You do this. Inward commitment. Uh, but it's also an outward commission. It's a Christ-centered event. It's an inward commitment exemplified. It's an outward commission explained. All right? Uh, there are literal physical elements to this thing. Um, we're not just doing an inward thing. We're not just saying, all right, everybody, let's close our, our eyes and imagine Jesus' blood and imagine us taking in. Remember in John chapter 6 where he talks about the discourse on the bread of life and how his body is meat indeed? So let's, let's think in our minds and imagine the Lord's body coming into us. All right, now let's imagine the Lord's blood coming into us. That would be all mental. We take an actual, literal, physical grape juice and an actual, literal, physical bread. You know what that reminds me? You're supposed to be doing some outward things. It's not just inwardly thinking about how thankful you are. If you are inwardly right, it will show on the outside. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. And there is a, um, an exaggerated teaching sometimes about the importance of having your heart right. And they'll say, God will change you from the inside out. And there's truth to that. Don't misunderstand. But they'll say, God will change you from the inside out to the point that at least many people understand it to mean, so don't worry about anything I do outwardly. Now there are others that all they worry about is how they live outwardly for everybody else to see. Well, wait a minute, you better worry about how God's looking on your heart. But here's my, pro my point. The point is, they influence each other. Mine eye, what I see outwardly, affects my heart, how I feel inwardly. Commit thy works outward to the Lord, and thy thoughts inward shall be established. You clean up on the outside the best you can, and it'll help your heart. You clean up your heart the best you can, and it'll help your outward actions. Nobody, no sane person really believes you do only one or the other. Can you imagine? Hey, go, go to work. Try this. Go to work and steal money from your company and give it to another company. And when they catch you, say, don't worry. Stealing that money out of the cash register and giving to this other company, that was all outward actions. But inwardly, my heart is with you, company. No, stupid. <laughs> if your heart is with them, you're going to do outward things that show your heart is with them. This crazy... Uh, Teaching that, oh, just get your heart right and everything will be all right. And then say, live however you want to, which, by the way, is what is taught in, the, in major churches these days. It is not right. 
Your inward will affect your outward, and your outward will affect your inward. The two go together constantly and always and all the time. So you know what we're doing? We're remembering the Lord Jesus on the inside. But outwardly, we're actually eating a piece of bread. Outwardly, we're actually drinking some grape juice. Outwardly, I hope, we're actually cleaning up our lives because of what we appreciate that the Lord Jesus Christ did in our memory. When we remember what He's done for us. Literal, physical ailments. You do it after salvation. It's to ensure heartfelt remembrance and inner commitment. If I see somebody outwardly attacking somebody, I don't think their heart is really with them. Literal physical ailments showing outward obedience. This do. What? Eat this bread and drink this cup. Take. Eat. Let's see. I got Colossians 121 here. What is that? I forget the wording of that one. Let me get it right here. Colossians 121. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind, inward, by wicked works, outward, yet now hath he reconciled. You see how these go together? Over and over. I don't know how many verses. There's probably 10 or 12 verses in the Bible that in the same verse talk about something inward and something outward happening. Outward obedience. Here's one other thing about this commission. It's a testimony to others. It says, show the Lord's death. As often as you do this, you do what? Show the Lord's death. Other people are supposed to be seeing the Lord's death as a result of how you live, as a result of what you say, as a result of what we remember tonight. We're supposed to be showing the Lord's death. There are plenty of backslidden people here in Cumberland County that need to be reminded of the Lord's death. There are plenty of lost people here in Cumberland County that need to remember the Lord's death. If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a preacher of the gospel, if you're going to be somebody that interacts out in that world, you're going to have to show the Lord's death to both parties. The ones that are away from the Lord and the ones that never have received the Lord. It's a testimony to others. Alright, so it's a Christ-centered event. It's an inward commitment exemplified. It's an outward commission explained. And now let's look at one other thing and we'll close. It is a second coming expected. Second coming expected. It says, you do show the Lord's death, how long? Till he come. Alright, now we're supposed to be looking for the second coming of our Lord Jesus. That ought to be something that we're excited about and anticipating. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that wonderful passage about the rapture as we call it, the resurrection, talks about comfort one another with these words after it says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Won't that be a day? Think about when the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and it said many of the saints came up out of the graves and were seen in the city. What You know it says the dead in Christ shall rise first and then it says and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now I always pictured that and was taught that it happens every bit of it instantaneous and there's no doubt that we're changed in the twinkling of an eye. But in every other case where the Lord resurrects somebody from the dead in the Bible, they're seen. It's made known. I can't think of a secret resurrection in the Bible. In all cases, it's public. 
What if the rapture, the dead in Christ rise first and they walk around for some short time, for a few minutes, for a few hours, for a few days, and then we're caught up together with them. It doesn't say there's an interval of time, but it doesn't say there's not. And in every other resurrection, they are seen. Boy, wouldn't that make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. If people that you know are dead and have been dead for years are up and seen. You remember when Elijah and Moses showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and they were talking about his death? I mean, that got the, I mean, the apostles, you know, they couldn't pull up old videos of Moses and Elijah, but they knew who it was. And they knew what they were talking about. And James and John didn't say a word, but Peter, you know, Peter was always wanting to talk and say something. Did you know something doesn't always have to be said? <laughs> for us preachers with the gift of gab, it's real hard for us to remember that. And other people uh, with the gift of gab, it's good to remind yourself, you don't always have to say something. Or if you do have to say something, good morning is, is plenty. <laughs> That'll do. With a heartfelt handshake or hug of the neck or, you know, just a, a compassionate look on your face, good morning or good evening or the Lord bless you or we're praying for you, that's plenty. But Peter was trying to think of something to say at such a momentous occasion. He said, uh, let's build three tabernacles here, Lord. What do you think? I mean, what would you say? Now, what would you say? If at the rapture of the church, for some short period of time, the dead in Christ are up and actually seen for a short time before we go up. Wow. Wouldn't that be something? There is anticipation to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 also talks about the resurrection and how it's planted a, a physical body and it's raised a spiritual body and all those interesting things. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the second coming that we expect as we take the Lord's Supper here in a little bit um, reminds us of our resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So I guess the Lord could have answered Peter, well, uh, Peter... If you're wanting tabernacles made, uh, the, the tabernacles that are needed in eternity are not made with hands. Verse 2, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Alright, verse uh, 5, Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who hath also given, us, given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The best thing that can happen to you is for you to be present with the Lord. Now, the closest thing you can add to it in the meantime is for the Holy Spirit to be indwelling your body and, in fact, in control of your body like the hand and the glove that we talk about sometimes. But it's far better to be in His presence. You have a loved one and you don't get to see him very often, but you call him on the phone. Nowadays you can even FaceTime him. But if you have to choose between that 
or actually having supper with them, which one would you choose? That's the way it is with the Lord Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Second coming anticipated. All right, also uh, the second coming incentivized. Incentivized. You have an incentive for hoping that the second coming comes soon. Uh, why is that? Well, because you'll be changed. 1 John chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. When the world looks at you and sees how you live and how you believe, that's strange to them. They can't make any sense of that. You know why? They don't know Jesus. And so the influence of Jesus is not something they recognize or understand. So the world knows us not because it knew him not. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Here's the incentive of the second coming. When he shows up, you're just like him. The Lord Jesus says, it is enough for the servant that he be as his master. When Jesus comes back one of these days, you will be as your master. Won't that be a wonderful day when you're a perfect likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, you're not right now. You're already the Son of God. When you got saved, you became a Son of God. He changed you on the inside. Bless your heart, he hasn't changed you on the outside yet, has he? That's the incentive of the second coming. All right, now we've seen four lessons learned from observing the Lord's Supper. Number one, it's a Christ-centered event. Don't come here and think about your brother or sister in Christ and what all they have wrong or what all they have right. Think about the Lord Jesus. Number two, it's an inward commitment. You acknowledge your debt. You examine yourself. I would hate to think that we were observing the Lord's Supper and somebody was looking over somebody else and thought, what are they doing taking the Lord's Supper? That sorry thing. Do you know what I know about them? <laughs> it doesn't say examine your brother. It doesn't even say for the pastor to come down and examine each one of you. I wouldn't want that responsibility. I'd have to quit my job to try to keep up with it all. Tell you the truth, I'd have to quit my job to examine myself like I ought to. It says examine yourself. Your personal relationship with the Lord is between you God. Before we observe the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, you think, now Lord, is my heart right as I'm doing this? Am I doing this out of bitter? I don't mean, are you bitter in general? There will be no fixing that. I don't mean, are you deceitful in general? Are you lustful in general? Are you covetous in general? You're going to have some of that stuff as long as you're in this flesh. I mean, as to the way you're taking the Lord's Supper, are you doing that respectfully and with your mind on Jesus Christ and not on somebody that thinks they're better than you or somebody that is un you feel is under you or whatever? Hey, my mind's on Jesus Christ. I'm thinking of him and what he did for me. It's an inward commitment. And involve yourself. Say, hey, just like I'm outwardly taking this bread and taking this juice, I'm going to outwardly get out there and be a witness. I'm going to outwardly get out there and be a testimony. I'm going to outwardly get out there and be a blessing. Involve yourself. Testimony to others. You're supposed to be showing the Lord's death till he come. Till he come. 
And that reminds me to say it's a second coming expected. We're anticipating it and we're incentivized because when he comes, all our troubles are over. You tell me a problem you're going to have when you're a perfect likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What, what problem can you have at that point? I mean, there, there is nothing that can get, touch you at that point. When we come back at the Battle of Armageddon and uh, we're fighting those armies and the Lord Jesus is on the white horse in front of us, those guys can't hurt us. Here we are in glorified bodies that can walk through a wall. They take a sword and they take a swing at us. It just goes right through us and nothing happens. <laughs> nothing hurts us. I mean, once you're a perfect likeness of Jesus Christ, your troubles are over in every category for all of eternity. What a wonderful thing. Nothing better than that. Dr. Ruckman used to say, if I can get one prayer answered, if the Lord said, all right, I'm just going to give you one prayer, and that's the only one I'm going to give you, but I will answer that one prayer. He said, you Christians better buckle your seatbelts because we're going up. <laughs> and he'd say that from Revelation. You know what John's last prayer request in the Bible is? When Jesus says, come quickly, John says, even so, like you just said, come, Lord Jesus. That's what we're looking for, and that's what will fix every problem we've got. And that's what we'll be remembering here in a few minutes as we observe the Lord's Supper. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that...